Our second message this afternoon is from Mr. Matt Steele. His sermon is entitled, By Law or Faith? Good afternoon, everybody. It's, uh, it's been a long time since um, sermon preparation kept me up all night. And I'm going to have words with Paul one of these days. Because um, I, I've been studying over the last uh, really couple of weeks on and off. And I'm just not satisfied with my own understanding or appreciation for Galatians. So, one of the things I really wish Paul had done with Galatians was not fired a shotgun at the Galatians with about 800 things all at once. And I really wish he had broken it out into 1st Galatians, 2nd Galatians, 3rd Galatians, maybe 8th Galatians. Because there's a lot in there. And at times, it seems like Paul is talking contrary, maybe even to himself, <laughs> and maybe even to the law of God. And you all know what I'm talking about. So what I'm going to do is throw out some ideas, my own approach. I think Curtis mentioned there's a bell around here somewhere I can, I can ring. Who was that that did that? Fred Coulter? But I, I want to kind of challenge us with what Paul is talking about in Galatians. And we're, we're, we're not going to do all <laughs> of Galatians today. Because we do have a board meeting, and uh, like I say, I really didn't get any sleep last night. So at some point I might collapse. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 21, Paul says something that we really should stop and consider. We should really just kind of... Take a little bit of time over this verse and ask ourselves a series of questions. And ask if you agree with it. Woo. Joe just gave me a funny look. Agree with Paul. Of course, you, you, you've got to agree with Paul. Right? You have to. It's in the Bible. I'm being a little playful. I'm setting you up a little bit, but that's okay. He said in verse 21, Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Do you agree? You don't have to put your hand up. Do you agree with Paul? Do you agree that if the Lord had given life, then righteousness would have come by the law? Well, let me ask you the question the other way. Is there a law that gives us life? That makes us righteous? Think about all the laws of God. There's a few. Does any single law give us life, make us righteous. Well, let me throw it out another way. Does keeping the Sabbath make you righteous? No. It's a good thing to do. It is a righteous thing to do, but it doesn't make us righteous, does it? So how about we look at the same question from the opposite direction? When you consider somebody else that goes to another church, do we use that as a tool to evaluate if they are righteous? Ugh. Now, I'm not saying we're deliberately trying to judge people and we're trying to say, all right, yeah, they're in the kingdom and they're not in the kingdom. We know we don't have that authority. But there is a tendency, isn't there? Because we believe what we believe. 
And it's human nature. We want others to believe likewise because we know this is true. We know this is right. And it is. But yet, it can be a slippery slope in our mind about using law, using God's law as a, what do they say in politics, a litmus test as to whether somebody is righteous. Does keeping the holy days make us righteous? The food laws. First or second tithe. I know. Third tithe makes us righteous, right? No. No. So to understand this question more, let's, let's kind of dig into what Paul is, the words he's using here. I mean, in the Greek, one of the words where he says, given life. For if there had been a law which could have given life, it truly means to make alive, to cause to come to life, to impart life. When he says righteousness would have been by the law, he means innocence, not guilty. By following the law, you're not guilty. Of all laws, a state of being right or just, free from sin, innocent of all charges. He does not say that there's a law that can do that. Now something is evident also in Paul's choice of words because he's, he's automatically setting the situation that if there isn't a law that could give life, then what is our condition already? We're in death, aren't we? Our natural estate, we are in that separation from God. We are sinners, cut off. We are dead to God. Devoid of real life. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, he says that we are once dead in trespasses. And he certainly did not think that the natural condition of man was innocence, did he? It's not. It's evident by how he uses his words. So again, we have to ask ourselves this question. Is there a law that makes us come alive, that makes us innocent? A law that by keeping it perfectly will bring us out of death and back to life? Perhaps it's not just one law. Perhaps it's keeping all the laws. Anybody that did that? Oh, sorry. I'm not supposed to do that because I'm supposed to be humble. So. so it's not even keeping all the laws, is it? It's not possible. But some people do believe that. Some people have believed that. In fact, there was... Galatians that believed that. Otherwise we wouldn't have this letter, or at least part of this letter. So it is possible for people to get deceived, to get persuaded, and to go down a road where they think that obeying all the law perfectly will bring righteousness and life, bringings out of death into life. So what's Paul's point? What is he saying here? What place does the law have in the Christian life? You know, if you do a very quick Google search, <laughs> you find all kinds. Read several articles last night, and each one of the authors was called Mr. Idiot or something like that. Okay, maybe it was in my opinion. But everybody has an opinion on the law and its place in the Christian life. But we have to ask ourselves that question. What does it do for us? And more importantly, or maybe just as important, what does it not do for us? I think to get a better understanding, we need to go back to the beginning of this chapter. And of course, as is the case sometimes with Paul, Galatians is, um, is written in a difficult way in a hard manner. 
and we need to work on it. Paul has this stream of consciousness that overlaps with different things and you, you have to hold about 58 different points in your mind until he gets to the conclusion. But we're going to try and just zero in on a couple of those things today. So, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want for you to learn, or for, to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? I wonder what their answer would have been. I wonder if they answered him. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? You know, and you can kind of tell his exasperation with, with the Galatians. All that they have struggled with, and then they have just fallen into this, this falsehood. They started out their faith knowing that Jesus was crucified for their salvation. And yet now they have been persuaded by false teachers, by those that came around after Paul. Smart guys, intelligent, probably lettered, degreed. And they came around, and they quickly turned their mind. And, you know, we, and we know some of that is in regards to circumcision and in all the religious practice that was wrapped up in that. But isn't it amazing how quickly people can be deceived? How rapidly they can leave even the things that they sacrificed for. So that's a lesson for us, isn't it? To not just assume to not just sit and say, well, Matt, we've heard countless sermons on this topic before. I'm just going to play with my iPad now. No, we, we, we need to, what was it, Curtis, you read earlier? We need to go over this again and again. This is not tedious because we need to guard our minds and understand that anyone can fall into this trap. So there's a lesson for us. We're not immune to this sort of thing. Did we receive the Spirit of God by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? The law of God was instrumental in teaching us, in guiding us. But as we'll see, the law is surpassed, wait a second, surpassed by faith. Because even the law, even the law of God, has limits. Verse 5, he says, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you shall all the nations of the earth, or shall all nations be blessed. And then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Is it possible? For those of us that have been believing this way, practicing this way, to turn and slip into this evaluation of others and then maybe evaluation of ourselves by the law and that we're made righteous by it. Can we start to believe that in some small way we have a role to play here? We have a part in making ourselves righteous. After all, doesn't Paul say in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He does say that, right? 
So we're to work it out ourselves. Well, no, because that's the danger of stopping in the mid-verse, isn't it? Because he does say that, but then he says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It's God that does it, not us. And that might make us a little mad because we work hard at it, as we should. We work hard at being very humble. We work hard at following the law of God, applying it in our lives, studying it, understanding its implications and its benefits. And we mourn for our society around us that doesn't follow the law of God and reap the consequences. Don't we mourn? We want everyone to follow the law of God. It's a beautiful thing. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. So who does the work? Who supplies the spirit? Who provides the miracles? It is God. And does he do it because we keep the law? Or does he do it because we have faith in him? Because we trust in him? There is, again, a temptation for us to slip back into this salvation by works mindset. Even if we don't fully believe it, even if we don't verbalize it, we might feel sometimes that we have, we have some things to do. And we can get a skewed sense of our own contribution. This is how much of our contribution it could maybe ever amount to. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 17, we know the story of the, the ten minas, minas, how do you pronounce that? And you remember when the servant that was given ten, or uh, I think he was given ten, and he, this is the top guy, this is the guy that got 100% return on what the master gave to him. And, and then the Lord said to him, well done, good servant. Because you are faithful in a very little. Very little. Have authority over ten cities. It means a lot. But let's be humble. The most that we can do is be faithful in a very little. By comparison to the faith and the faithfulness that God has toward us. Back in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10, he says, for many as, are, uh, as for many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. And this is a fascinating passage to me because Paul really likes this little phrase, the just shall live by faith. It's from Habakkuk, chapter 2 and verse 4. And Paul uses this in three different occasions, at least I think it's Paul. He uses it uh, uh, Romans, here in Galatians, and it also pops up in Hebrews. The full verse from Habakkuk is found in the midst of a vision. It's a poetic couplet. And it says, behold the proud. You know, the opposite of humble, right? Behold, take a look at the proud. Examine them. Take notice of them. His soul is not upright, meaning right or straight. His soul is not upright in him. But the just shall live by faith. It doesn't say the just shall live by law. And Paul uses this. He uses it three times. I think we should pay attention to it. The just shall live by faith. But in the end, really, why should we expect any different? 
The truth is, Paul is not making this stuff up, is he? I mean, at one point, Galatians was a new epistle. It was new. It was fresh. It was starting to build the theology of the Christian church. Paul just wasn't making this up. He was building it upon the scriptures, pulling those key verses. He was adding to it that which Jesus gave to him. And we have to have faith in that. We have to trust Paul. We have to follow Paul as he followed Christ. Showing us the truth of God and the salvation of Jesus in our lives. So in Galatians 3 and verse 12 he says, Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Wait a second. Is this another one of these contradictions of Paul? Didn't he just say that, you know, the the Lord couldn't make us alive? And yet now we're living by the law. What, What is Paul talking about here? Well, he quotes Leviticus 18 and verse 5. And he says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Interesting. So which way is it? Are we made alive by the law or not? Well, again, it's down to the use of the words. In this reference that Paul references in the original Hebrew, the word che, it does mean living, but it does not mean make alive. It almost implies that it maintains life. It keeps you alive, but it doesn't give life to you. So that's interesting. And Paul clearly decided that that's what it meant because he uses the similar word in the Greek. The law helps us stay alive. It doesn't make us alive from a state of sin. And this makes sense. The law of God is designed to help us. It's designed to give us long and healthy lives. We see the benefits of it. In fact, in Leviticus 18 and verse 6 onwards, is something that the Supreme Court of the United States should really read again. Because it's very clear about the law of God and about how you can live a lot longer by following that law. Something else to note here is that Paul in his argument with the Galatians, he's now starting to shift this emphasis. He's starting to define more completely what the law is for and what it is not for. He continues in verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak as in the manner of man, as though it was a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. What did he just say there? Paul is so difficult to read at times. So what he's essentially saying, what I get from this, is that even in man's contracts, even in man's agreements between two parties, there's restrictions, there's limits, and you can't add anything to it. At least not without both parties accepting an amendment, right? And so then he goes on to say in verse 16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, He does not say unto seeds, as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ, and this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, 
cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance, if life, salvation, righteousness is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So this, the law that, that becomes codified later doesn't change the agreement of salvation. The law is important. But what's really interesting is that, in a sense, the salvation of God, the plan of God, preceded everything else. Preceded the law. As it relates to us. So in other words, if we're going to quibble with Paul, if we're going to argue with him about the role of the law in the Christian life, if we're going to argue with him about how salvation can come from the law, as some argue, then we must also realize that we are quibbling and arguing with God. It's very clear. This isn't, this isn't Paul's just Paul's words. This is from the Old Testament. This is from the law of God. It is God who made the promise. He gave his word to Abraham. And for our sake, he has to keep that word. How could we, how could we trust God if he doesn't keep that promise? So if we're tempted, even for a second, to think that by keeping the law, we can earn some part of our salvation. And we need to realize that we are going against the promise that God made. And we run the risk of calling God a liar. I wouldn't want to do that. Salvation is by grace through faith, cannot be earned by anything we do. And again, you know, I was sitting here, and may think, well, this is pretty ridiculous. It's, it's so obvious. And yet, I know in, in my personal experience with Christians of different types, I've seen this happen. And, and maybe you have too. The congregation that I used to attend back in England um, at one point got so wrapped up in the notion that, well, they weren't being blessed by God. We're, we must be doing something wrong. We're not following the law quite right, quite correctly. So what is it we're doing wrong? And they embarked on a, on a study and, a, and, and an analysis, and they went down this journey, and they changed some of their practices. Calendar, um, I think maybe sacred names, something like that. Those things of themselves are fine to do and follow and believe. But these folks were obsessing about it. It became the key to unlocking God's spirit, his blessings, the miracles that Paul was talking about. It now became the key to unlocking that, at least in their mind. I witnessed it. Convinced that their ministry would go, grow, and that God would add to their numbers. And I remember a, a minister coming to the point where he said, this is a salvation issue. If you don't change this holy day or this, I can't remember the exact detail, but it was, it was a matter of law. If you don't, then you're defying God and... So therefore, the logic carries out, doesn't it? That we can earn salvation. Now I'm, you know, I'm taking it to its extreme. Because obviously having a defiant heart, not walking in the spirit, and in the way that God is leading you, well, that is a salvation issue. But specifically making an interpretation of the law a requirement for salvation is exactly 
what the folks that were coming to the Galatians were doing. Sneaking it in there. So, we should not think that it cannot happen to us. Us personally, as a church, as a larger church community. So Paul asks, what purpose then does the law serve? Ah, glad he asked the question. He's been dragging us around for a while. It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but, for, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law, as we read earlier, which would have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. Kept for the faith that which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor, bringing us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But, having, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. I really like, I don't often do this, and my wife will give me a hard time later. I really like the NIV version in this passage. She's, she's amazed. Um, so let me just read that to you again, because I think it, we can get a little bit more out of it. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if the law had been given, <clears throat> if a law that had been given could, that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. So that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. That's a really interesting way of putting it, isn't it? We're not under the supervision of the law. So it's at this point that all the evangelicals that may have been in our theoretical debate leave the room, right? Law's done away with. Bring on the bacon. <clears throat> yeah, that's not what he said. It's been removed from us. We, we don't have to follow the law anymore. <clears throat> no, that's not what he said. But what's interesting is, I've also seen something, and maybe you have too, that because a broader Christian world says that and, and thinks that, others have said, well, that must be what Paul is saying. And that can't be right. So I'm going to reject Paul. Because there's no other reconciliation. If that's what Paul is saying, I can't believe that. I can't believe that the law is done away with. And so they reject Paul. It's not the law that is done away with. It's Paul. Paul's the problem. And this is all from confusion, isn't it? From deception. From lies. <clears throat> a few weeks ago, um, well, maybe about a month ago, I was, I was discussing with a colleague at work a particular uh, problem that he was having. He's in our uh, R&D department. And so it's his job to come up with cool stuff. And he gets to play with all the cool gadgets. And so I like to hang out in his office. And 
we brainstormed sometimes, and he was having some problems with some software, and he's like, you're not going to believe this, because it's one of those moments that you realized your high school teachers were right. You're going to need to know this someday. Yeah. He's like, I actually had to use Pythagoras' theorem the other day. Isn't that right, Ray? Occasionally need that. And he was, uh, I think he was trying to evaluate the height of a structure. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember my old math teacher. He was so cool. So my old math teacher, he, he would really encourage us, probably to our detriment, to get our work done quickly. I think I may have told you this before. Because if we all got done with our classwork in enough time, he'd tell us a story about when he was younger during the war, and all the antics he would get up to. And he was a great storyteller, funny. And it made me think about him, and I realized he probably isn't even alive anymore. He was kind of older when he was my teacher. And I got to thinking about that. I left high school 26 years ago. I know. There might be some people in here that are Younger than that. So, I was thinking about that, 26 years, finally used Pythagorean's theorem, or found somebody else that used it. It still works. Who'd it are? Oh wait, it's about 2,000 years old, isn't it, really, the theory. What else still works? Um, well, I don't go to physics class anymore, but I think E still equals MC squared, right? It's, that hasn't changed. Supreme Court hasn't got a hold of that one. <laughs> the English language, so we can't leave the English teachers out of it, still has words that are spelled differently yet sound exactly the same, right? We still haven't fixed that problem. So that's still the same. There are still eight bits in a byte, right? Is that right, Brian? Okay. So these things have not changed. And yet I am no longer in high school or college. I'm no longer under those tutors, those teachers. That's an interesting concept, isn't it? One that we should apply to the law. Because what we've learned from the law the examples, the insight, the skills, the tools, the knowledge still exists, even though we're no longer under its tutelage. That's what Paul was trying to get us to understand. And he makes it pretty hard. But I guess maybe we'll remember it once we figure it out. We can trust these principles. We can follow these laws just like we follow all the things that we learned in high school, mostly. There's some things we should leave behind in high school that we learned. And we can still follow the principles and the laws. And we've had other teachers, haven't we? We've had other teachers that expound on other areas of the law, and we've learned more, and we've understood the truth. Paul is trying to get us to understand. So if we are no longer under the tutelage of the law, then who is our teacher? Anybody? It's not a trick question. Christ. Jesus is our teacher. So, it's almost like moving from learning under the book to learning under the one that wrote the book. It's better. It's deeper. It's stronger. It's probably more understood. Why? Because through the Spirit, it's customized to us. I'm not saying that you know, the principles are malleable and, and that the truth changes. But Jesus is a real teacher. And through his spirit, 
He can teach us things that just reading alone wouldn't teach us. Because it's real, immediate relationship with our tutor. So what is Paul saying? Are Christians to follow the law or not? Is the law of God still valid? To answer that, we simply move forward into Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16. And it might seem a little, you know, a little confusing again at first, but this is part of Paul's conclusion. He's, he's bringing this whole train of thought with all the different facets to a conclusion. And he's, he's saying, all right, stay with me. This is the conclusion. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the lusts of the uh, for the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. This is the same sentiment that Paul echoes over in Romans chapter 7 and verse 21. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members, my body. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the Lord of sin. Notice, he is still consistent. He does delight in the law of God. Why wouldn't he? This law, though, by itself, cannot save. It cannot redeem us from sin. And he is consistent across the board. We just have to take time and patiently work with Paul. And he demands that we work with him. He just doesn't spoon feed it. He wants us to work with him to understand it. Paul does not do away with the law. He upholds it. He strengthens its importance, even in the lives of believers. What he does not do is show how Jesus <clears throat> um, what he does also do is show how Jesus has changed our relationship to the law. Jesus has through his new covenant in his own blood has changed how we use the law of God. His law. We have a perfect example of that when Jesus himself said you have heard it said what? Take your pick. If you're angry at your brother, you've already murdered him. Jesus has changed the relationship that we have with the law. He is now our tutor. I think Paul shows us this very clearly in Galatians 5, verse 19. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, Jealousies, outbirths of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if Paul has gotten rid of the law, how is he, how is he stating these things? What justification does he have for these sins? Well, he wouldn't have any, would he? Of course not. His authority comes from the scriptures. Adultery, Exodus 20. Fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, Leviticus 18. Idolatry, sorcery, Le Leviticus 19 and 20. Hatred, 
contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions. Leviticus 19. Dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries. Well, you get the picture. All these things are against the law of God, against the principles for right living. And we may have broken one or two of these, right? And if that's the case, then coming back around and keeping the law of God perfectly does nothing for us, does it? Christ alone. So this idea that Paul did away with the law is further refuted. Because if he cites all these sins, if he cites all these things that we have, we're capable of doing in our naturalist condition, and each one of those things is called out of the, the scriptures, then the other side of it is this in verse 22. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and the big one that covers most of them, self-control. But then what else does he say? Against such there is no law. There's no law against these. There still is a law against the others. That's the context. There is no law against the fruits of the Spirit, implying that there is then still laws that work against the flesh, the works of the flesh. Love does not rejoice, as we know, in iniquity or lewdness, but rather rejoices in the truth. And those who are in Christ have been crucified, the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Again, he warns us, don't let your guard down. Don't become conceited. Don't allow ourselves to fall into the trap of either thinking the law is done away or that we have some part to play in our own earning of salvation. After all, as Curtis pointed out earlier, what do we, what do we have to boast about? We do have something. In Galatians 6 and verse 13, he says, For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast, except in the cross or the, the stake of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And right there at the end of that passage, that simple verse, we have four words. And Paul has spent all this time and energy trying to, to get us to understand our new relationship with the law. And then he puts this, but a new creation. And that to me is the key. That's, that's, the, that's the whole point. Paul sums up the whole mystery in four words. But a new creation. This is new. This whole faith of Jesus Christ as it was written then, as it was being formulated then, as the doctrine was being preached then, was new. And then it's new for each one of us as we accept it. More than just debates as to whether Christians should obey the laws or not. More than just questions about whether 
this law exists or that law exists and we should follow these practices and that practices. When we ask those questions, I think we miss the whole point. We miss the whole point of what Paul is trying to get us to understand. That through Jesus Christ, through the salvation that he has brought, through the new creature that he has created in us, we grow, we mature according to his work. Remember, his work in us. He shapes us, he molds us to the point that we'll be at moment in time for each one of us when obeying the law, being righteous, is just a natural byproduct of being a son of God. We're no longer under the law. We are under Christ, our tutor, building us up into a being that just is righteous, is just lawful. What a beautiful image that is. How powerful that should be and encouraging to us. We can just leave these debates of law and grace, Christ in us. That is our goal. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them.